If you're a grower, for example, and you've seen a large cloud of white flies get on your plants, it doesn't hurt to go preventative because you know what? If they all started laying eggs and you didn't notice until they're all nymphs, I mean, that could be a little bit too late. Right. But uh, at the same time, it's, you know, be aware that it's also possible that they, it may take a little while before they start laying eggs. It kind of depends, I think, uh, again, what was the original host plant species? What are they on now? And how long will it take for them to really adapt or acclimate. Hi, my name is Irfan Vafai with Texas A&M AgriLife Extension. And I'm Vikram Baliga with Texas Tech University. And this is Jolly Green Scientists, a podcast where we digest research articles and findings from trade magazines pertaining to the green industry and regurgitate them for you. And this week, we're talking about endosymbionts. That's these bacteria that have usually some kind of a beneficial relationship with different insects and insects as a result kind of help harbor and feed these endosymbionts. And before we kind of go forward into this, I want to give a little bit of context and reason as to why we kind of thought this would be relevant. Uh, since kind of the beginning of October, I've received a number of reports of large clouds of whiteflies, uh, especially near Austin, uh, North Texas, near Dallas, and even in East Texas in our region, people's gardens all of a sudden seemingly having a large abundance of white flies and people concerned about what should they do to control them. And uh, it's not uncommon. There's a lot of anecdotes uh, of white flies migrating in large populations, especially when cotton is being defoliated, which they often do just before they harvest. Yep. And so uh, are, you, are you familiar with that process? I mean, you're in a, you're in a cotton yeah place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they're doing that right now. Actually, uh, we're in the middle of uh, kind of defoliation time. And so there, there's, I don't know how much you want me to go into it. But there's different ways of doing it. Usually they use a chemical defoliant. Yeah, uh, it's essentially a burned down herbicide. Um, they I, actually they don't like I think they don't like when we say defoliants, but harvest aids, I think is what they usually go with. That's a harvest aid. It's a <laughs> oh, defoliant. So they they spray uh, these burned down herbicides over the plants and it essentially knocks all the leaves off without damaging the cotton bolts. And so it makes um, a much cleaner harvest when they run the cotton strippers through there. They don't pick up as much leaf trash and other plant trash. Um, and so, yeah, that they start, it depends where you are in the state. For us up here on the South Plains and High Plains, it, it usually starts early October. Okay, um, yeah. They, yeah, and I think that's about when it started for us, maybe a little bit earlier as well, maybe where we are possibly. Um, yeah. And, you know, you can have large populations of white flies on those leaves. And when you defoliate those leaves and they have nowhere to go, all of a sudden you can get these like clouds of, of white flies kind of migrating to nearby commodities. Now, the question is, does that mean that they are quickly going to establish on a new plant? You know, one of the most common white flies that we get here on a lot of our commodities, including cotton and a lot of our ornamentals and fruits and vegetables, are uh, the, the Latin name is Bimesia tabassi, or common name known as sweet potato white flies, which are, uh, it's actually considered a cryptic species. There's actually like huh. several species within this group uh, that are, you know, physically identical to each other. So you can't really tell them apart, but it's through molecular analysis. Uh, there's differences in, uh, you know, host range and in insecticide resistance in ability to vector certain viruses that cannot interbreed uh, these different cryptic species. Um, and so, you know, we have two main ones here. Uh, and so 
but, but but the important thing here, right, is that w- when they go to a new commodity, people have also typically observed that they don't start laying eggs right away and they don't perform super well right away. So the question is like, what's going on when they go from one host plant to another? And so one of the potential explanations uh, is the use, uh, is the role of these endosymbionts. So we already know in aphids as well, aphids have a primary endosymbiont uh, known as Bucknera aphidicola, which basically helps wow, it. Wow, that was that was quite a word you just yes. said at me. Yeah, that's the Latin name of the bacteria. <laughs> the primary endosymbiont, these aphids, they require this endosymbiont. Without it, they cannot fix the essential amino acids mm. that they require. The same thing with uh, Bamesia tabassi. It seems as though they have uh, a primary endosymbiont known as Portiera allerodidarium. I did not say that one as smoothly. Cool. Yeah. No, <laughs> yeah. I enjoyed it though. It was good. Yeah. You enjoy. I'm glad you enjoyed that experience. I did. It was good. It was good for me. <laughs> uh, and this, in the same similar fashion to what we see in aphids, helps um, you know create certain uh, essential amino acids that they need. There are also secondary endosymbionts that may or may not occur in different insect populations within a species. So some aphids of a specific species may have it and others may not. That can give them different like uh, physiological advantages or, or nice qualities. So for example, defense against natural enemies. So there are some endosymbionts that can make aphids basically fight off uh, and or resist uh, parasitic wasps. Wow. Yeah. So if, we've spoken about these parasitoids before. You know, they lay eggs inside mm-hmm. the aphid and develop within the aphid. And, the, and, and basically that parasitoid egg and larva releases proteins that convinces the aphid that it's just another embryo. So it can just get all this nutrients. This secondary endosymbiont, if it's in there, Hamiltonella defensa is the Latin name for that, that bacteria, it can help actually recognize and kill that parasitic egg and larva. That's fascinating. Yeah. And so theoretically, and I remember thinking about this, you know, then theoretically you can breed resistance in an aphid population against parasitic wasps, which it has been found in uh, kind of lab cultures in small cages. If there is very high parasitoid pressure, you can actually uh, move your aphid population to having a higher density of the endos, these endosymbionts. So they are now all of a sudden not being killed by the parasitic wasps anymore. In environmental settings, there's a lot more variability. So mm-hmm. if your parasitoid populations are more variable, then they can perhaps uh, circumvent those bacteria. Uh, you'll have some aphids that do have the bacteria and some that don't. And it's generally thought that these bacteria um, they they have some energetic cost to the aphids. So if there's no parasitoids, it's better not to have these bacteria because then you can reproduce more and not have to feed these bacteria. Right. And so now going back to the white flies, now shifting back, uh, we got this primary endosymbiont and it synthesizes a number of genes um, or I should say it has a number of genes that synthesize uh, proteins that are needed for um, basically, again, creating these certain amino acids. And so the question they're asking in this uh, particular article, all right, that we're, we're going to discuss called uh, Nutritional Relationship Between Bemisia tabaci and its Primary Endosymbiont P. aleroididerum during host plant acclimation. And so that is basically, 
you know, what is happening with this particular primary endosymbiont when, when Bemisia is going from one plant host to another. And that's really, that's really an interesting, um, I think, path to take for this article, because I think in general, you know, as someone who is not an entomologist, I tend to think of whitefly as like one of the most generalist <laughs> insect pests. Like if you've right. got a plant, Whitefly is like, hey, I like that. Let's eat that. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you were you were talking earlier about how um, one of the big questions here is how quickly can they adapt to a new species? And in my mind, you know, running a greenhouse, I'm like, real fast. You know, you get a white fly, <laughs> it's in, whatever. Yeah. Um, but there's some really interesting results in this paper uh, to that end of, of how long does it take? How, how quickly can they change their... Correct me if I'm wrong in my understanding of this, but essentially it's like their their gut flora, their their microbiome, and I know it's a, a different mechanism than in a uh, mammalian species or something else. But yeah, so it's like a very similar concept, right? So in humans, we've made a lot of discoveries over the last couple decades about the human microbiome, right? That there is this uh, community of bacteria that, when it's disrupted, uh, it can cause all kinds of problems from like memory loss to immune system problems, mm -hmm. like all kinds of things, right? Uh, in this case, we're talking one type of bacteria, but um, you know, that one bacteria evolves at a much more rapid rate than your single organism. Sure. So you can have uh, adaptation or change in phenotype, basically ability to reproduce on a certain plant much quicker within one generation of a white fly, say, than instead of like, you know, several generations having to adapt. And so what you're getting is essentially a, a slight shift, perhaps, in the phenotypic makeup of this one specific species of bacteria within the white fly, instead of a change in a uh, community of, of different species. Got it. Of bacteria. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. It makes sense. So, so something I thought was interesting looking at some of the, the methodology for this, and this is not like super critical to the, the, the work they did, but the first sentence uh, of, of the materials and methods says that they have kept this um, colony of white fly for five years, <laughs> five years. How long does a white fly live? A couple of weeks? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, they can live a little bit longer in a couple of weeks. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, they say here, that's about more than 85 generations. 85. Yeah. That's a lot. That's pretty in interesting. But I yeah. guess, do they maintain these for research purposes? These colonies are exactly. Yeah. So very commonly, I mean, if you have a full research program going on, you're usually maintaining some of your own insect colonies. Um, and it really helps to have that consistency because then you know your organism really well, right? Sure. If you were to then, instead, if they just went and collected white flies from the field, they don't know how many generations it was from one, cr what crop right. they don't, there's a lot of things they don't know, a lot of variability in there. Whereas with their own colonies, they know exactly, you know, there, there may be other papers published on this particular colony's genetics, or maybe they've done some temperature tolerance. Maybe they've done some other work with this specific colony so that you can gain insight about a population over time. Sure. That makes sense. Yeah. Okay. And so, uh, yeah. And so what they're looking at here, right? So like you said, they're, they're raised on Chinese kale, like a brassica for five years. Yeah. And, long time. <laughs> and then they want to see, okay, what happens when you put it onto a different plant and, and primarily they're looking at a number of different families, plant families, such as cotton, cucumber, poinsettia, and tomato. 
And essentially what they do is they are, you know, collecting about 100 adult white flies, putting them in cages with these different host plants, including back on Chinese kale as well. So they can kind of compare it back to their like native host, essentially. And um, they're removing the adults after, you know, a short period of time and then waiting for those immatures to develop into new adults. They then do some assays with those adults to know, you know, how many eggs are they laying? What is the uh, development time of their nymphs? So on and so forth. At the same time, they are collecting adults, putting them on the new host plants, collecting new adults, putting them on new host plants over and over again for 10 generations. So they're basically putting them, say, on poinsettias, for mm-hmm. assessing them on first generation on poinsettia to 10th generation on poinsettia. Cotton, first generation to 10th generation. They're trying to see like that first generation on that new host plant how well do they perform? And then does that change by the time they've had 10 generations on that particular host plant? So as as they did this, um, what what changes were they specifically looking for? So what phenotypic changes? So they were looking primarily at these different uh, amino acids, correct? That yeah. are... So there's uh so so they're looking at some uh, general phenotypic differences in the actual uh, white flies, which is survival rate of uh, egg and nymphal stages. Uh, they're looking at developmental time and right, they're looking right, at fecundity, right. right? How many eggs are they laying? I had to and Google then, that, by the way. Sorry, I had to Google that, by the, the way. Word fecundity. fecundity. <laughs> I was like, I know, I know what this means, but I'm gonna make sure I know what this means. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's what's referred to as like realized fecundity, which is how many eggs they're actually laying. There's another type of fecundity where you're actually dissecting the female and seeing how many eggs she's developed. And so there might wow. be some reduction from you know how many have developed to how many you've sure. laid. Um, and then what they're doing is um, they are doing some molecular work on on some of these uh, white flies to look at the gene expression, specifically looking at uh, genes that are in that primary endosymbiont and seeing how the expression of those genes differs. So using reverse transcriptase, so that's where like you know that stuff has been made into RNA. Now you're taking the RNA and reverse transcribing it, and you can know how much of this protein are they trying to make essentially. Right. And so they're looking at uh, the expression of these proteins, again, from white flies either on kale uh, or first generation on a new plant or te- after the 10th generation of being on a new new plant. Yeah. One thing I thought was interesting is uh, even just starting in figure one, the survival rate, uh, th- they don't see any differences. Right? Yeah, very interesting. When the white flies go from the kale after five years of being on the kale to all of a sudden going to a brand new host plant, even that first generation, that egg to nymphal stage survival rate, uh, it doesn't change. No difference, uh, right? Yeah, you see some trends, right? Like mm-hmm. on cucumber, it looks like it might decrease from about 60% to about 40%. In some cases on poinsettia, for example, it, it there's a trend from 60% to about 80%, but it's not significantly different. So there's enough variation within that survival that it's it's you know basically no difference. Right. And, you know, there is an interesting trend here, especially even looking at cotton uh, between both the um, survival rate and developmental time um, that while there were there were no differences in uh, survival rate, you do see a trending down with cotton plants uh, actually as those generations progress. So at generation 10, uh, though not significantly less, there were less uh, survivors. Uh, and then, but but looking at developmental time, um, you actually get a shorter developmental time in cotton, but maybe less survivors, which is just a weird and interesting kind of trend. 
Yeah, and that's where when, when you go to developmental time is where you start to see some significant differences, right? So if when they go to cucumber, for example, right away, there's a decrease in the amount of development, developmental time from about 25 days to about 20 days from egg to adult. Uh, and we're looking at, yeah, like you said, um, on cotton, for example, that first generation, there's no difference. But after the 10th generation, they also decrease developmental time to about 20 days. So basically, they're they're developing a little bit more rapidly. When we look at some of the other plants, so we look at poinsettia and tomato, you actually see an increase in development of time, both for the first generation and even after 10th generation. Yeah. It is still sustained. You still see an increased uh, amount of developmental time. And then lastly, there's also cucumber, where first and 10th generations have decreased developmental time as compared to uh, on kale as well. When we start to look at some of the expression levels of these different uh, proteins, um, it's kind of a mixed bag. Like it's all over the place as far yeah. as uh, between the males and the females in the expression. But practically speaking, um, what are some of the uh, practical effects of this? Because they do discuss in this paper how uh, some of these differences between plants and between gene expression, all this may have a larger impact on the female uh, white fly than on the male white fly. Um, so what does that mean for like subsequent generations and all of that? Yeah, so it's quite interesting. Like they're looking at six different genes, um, and yeah, like you said, in general, they're seeing some some different, more differences in the females and the males depending on the host plant. So it like varies quite a bit by host plant, and generation one to generation ten can have quite a bare, uh, bit of, of of difference as well. So mm -hmm. for example, this one ILVC uh, when they are going over to cotton plants the females have a huge decrease in its expression by the 10th, gen 10th generation. And it might, again, just be related to the nutrient makeup in that cotton doesn't warrant that particular gene quite as much. Right. And some of these genes may be more important to reproduction than others. So as you'd imagine, it would affect females differently than males. But I think just like the kind of the takeaway there is that you do see a shift in the gene expression when they shift uh, over to a new host plant. And that suggests that, you know, they, they do need to change those primary endosymbionts do kind of need to change uh, kind of their, their factories in order to optimize for uh, processing this new nutrient, this new uh, plant material. So kind of moving into some of the discussion parts, I mean, there's, there's a lot we could talk about in terms of the results, but um, something I thought was really interesting um, looking at the discussion is that the species of whitefly, it says it may actively manipulate the amount and activities of its endosymbionts uh, during host plant acclimation. So that's such an interesting like evolutionary development, right? That they have the ability to essentially work not okay i'm anthropomorphizing a lot right but <laughs> but the fact that there's such a close relationship between this insect and this this gut bacteria essentially the, sim the symbiotic bacteria so that it you know for me reading this it makes it gives me a lot you know we, we talked about how uh white flies are pretty generalist mm -hmm. right yep. and it seems to me as a non-entomologist that this ability to uh, change some of the ways that these bacteria process amino acids and stuff and its ability to adapt may be a big part of that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so they, they basically say there might be two reasons why things might shift, right? It might be the endosymbiont responding 
to physiological conditions changing the insect. So the insect is feeding on something new. Um, so the bacteria perhaps that are better optimized to deal with this new source of nutrients do better and the ones that are not don't do as well. So you have this shift in makeup. Right. Or it might be the actual host. The insect activates some mechanisms uh, to actually eat the, the bacteria that aren't <laughs> as good, right? Like they use like right. rhizosomes or um, different processes to essentially digest uh, these endosymbionts that aren't quite as useful in that particular scenario. Um, and so where it gets uh, kind of even more interesting when we're talking about the context of endosymbionts, their role in insects, and, you know, how is this important when it comes to applied um, pest management? Right, they talk about uh, manipulation of these endosymbionts, or by understanding their mechanisms a bit better, we can either target insecticides to to get those endosymbionts, mm -hmm. or we might be able to manipulate them. So these, a lot of these endosymbionts uh, can be transmitted what's called horizontally. So if two white flies feed on the same plant, uh, they might transmit this bacteria from within the plant to each other. And so if you could uh, put in some kind of endosymbiont that uh, let's say you've inserted a gene that eats up the detoxification mechanism in the white fly that it would use to, let's say, be resistant to, to imidacloprid, right. right? You can make them susceptible again all of a sudden. Uh, and so there's these very interesting kind of applications uh, in, in understanding how endosymbionts uh, actually work. Well, and it makes me think of the way that we've used uh, uh, BT technology in our crops, but Bacillus thuringiensis, right? Mm -hmm. So that's uh, something that's active in the um, uh, gut of caterpillars that you can kill caterpillars with it. And from a plant breeding standpoint, um, you know, this this is maybe a little bit of a departure, but again, I'm I'm very much an applied scientist. So when I think about this, I'm like, okay. How, how can this be useful, right? And like you just said, there's a lot of possibilities, but, um, you know, from, from a chemical standpoint, from a chemical application standpoint, one day, if we're not careful, we'll be out of tricks. You know, I, right. I was at a grower meeting one time, and this was more herbicide related. Um, but the question was asked, what is the herbicide of the future? herbicide of the future hmm. and and this this he probably i don't know if he got in trouble for this but uh this this rep from a big chemical company said tempered steel and what huh. he meant by that is we were talking about some new classes of chemistries coming on the market for um use in cotton fields but we're seeing lots of um development of, of herbicide resistance in some of our very common cotton weed pests hmm. uh, uh palmer amaranth a few others uh, and the point he was making is that if we're not careful, or the point he went on to make is that if we're not careful with the way that we apply our chemicals, we'll breed tons of resistance in, and we'll be out of tricks one day. And so, running, you know, hoe crews or or cultivation, right, may be the herbicide of the future. So I oh think about which which for a sales rep from a chemical company <laughs> that sells herbicides to say that to a bunch of growers, that's serious business. Right. So I think about that application here and it's like, okay, we have maybe ways around some of these resistance issues. Like you mentioned that we could uh, potentially breed our plants to diminish the, the genes that control resistance in, in our white fly populations and our other, you know, insect population. It's fascinating to me. That whole concept is really fascinating to me. Yeah. And I wish, uh, so what I found really neat in this paper, and I kind of wish 
that there's some more research into this, you know, the whole endosymbionts and their importance in host plant acclimation, uh, you know, is that they, they start them on kale and I'm really curious what happens if you start them on say cotton, you have them on cotton sure. for a full summer, let's just say. So not even five years, but let's say 10 generations and try and switch them over because what we're finding you know, those have had like clouds of white flies in my garden these last three weeks yeah. on my peppers and tomatoes uh, mainly. And I have yet to see any eggs, nymphs, or pupae, which is very interesting because it would suggest that uh, in that particular scenario, they are taking much longer to actually first produce eggs. Their uh, fecundity would be much lower. Perhaps their survivorship is much lower. So it makes you kind of curious as to uh, whether there's there's more to this um, you know, by investigating kind of what happens if you manipulate that initial host plant they're on. Right. Right. Yeah. What, what, uh, downstream effects do you have on the subsequent generations on that? Really, really interesting stuff. Again, yeah. this was, this was out of my wheelhouse because that's not, you know, when we talk about symbiotic relationships and plants, they, they operate. I don't want to say they operate differently. There's, there's some similarities, but the, the mechanisms are very different. And so that's, mm. this was very interesting for me to kind of uh, read through and try to wrap my brain around a little bit. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I think the takeaway, so if you're a grower, for example, and you've seen a large cloud of white flies get on your plants, you know, um, it doesn't hurt to go preventative because you know what, if they all started laying eggs, uh, and you didn't notice until they're all nymphs. I mean, that could be a little bit too late. Right. But uh, at the same time, it's, you know, be aware that it's also possible that they, it may take a little while before they start laying eggs before, even if they do, they, they may not. Um, so it really kind of depends. I think, uh, again, what was the original host plant species? What are they on now? And how long will it take for them to really adapt or acclimate, uh, as it uh, mentions in this paper, to that new host plant? Yeah, so as always, application timing, good scouting, good monitoring uh, of your plants and of your pest populations is essential to your success in pest management. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, I want to bring up uh, one other news article that's been circulating around recently about uh, this ironclad beetle, commonly referred to as the diabolical ironclad beetle. You know, that's quite a name. Yes, it looks like a small <laughs> little rock. I mean, this yeah. thing looks tough. Yeah. Um, the actual Latin name is Floides diabolicus. So like diabolical is a part of the there Latin you go. name as well. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so there was this, this paper that was just published in Nature uh, called Toughening Mechanisms of the Elytra of the Diabolical Ironclad Beetle. And it's it's pretty remarkable. This organism is thought to be one of the structurally most robust things that that, that we know of, um, and they go on to say that you know it can basically withstand uh, uh, fractures at a maximum force of 149 newtons with an average load of 133 plus or minus 16 newtons, which is about 39,000 times its body weight. That's so a lot. <laughs> yeah, if you can imagine laying on the ground and having 38,999 people standing on top of you and you still being okay. <laughs> I try not to imagine things like that. <laughs> but that's um, that's pretty amazing. Yeah, it's remarkable. So this beetle has, a, you know, a lot of uh, different uh, beetles and prey items, let's say in general, have adapted to uh, escape potential predators by flight, for example, by right. running. This one has adapted to survive 
being eaten by just being incredibly tough. Yeah. Uh, and it's even been um, basically reported that, you know, it can survive occasionally being driven over by a car, um, you know, that it uh, is stronger than the, the amount of force that um, you can apply by putting your finger and end up uh, your thumb and index finger together. So it's about 43 Newtons. So again, this can tolerate oh, wow. about 149 Newtons. So it's more than three times the force that you can apply between. So you would not be able to crush it in your fingers. Unsquishable. Yeah. The unsquishable you have bug. millions of things of these things like attacking you. That's don't try crushing them between your thumb and Just finger. Run. Just run. Yeah, I don't know what you would do. I don't no. know if stomping would pr- produce enough force. I'm not that's sure. A, that's crazy. Yeah. Just carry a hammer with you. Uh, so actually, <laughs> funny oh, no. you mentioned oh, no. a hammer. <laughs> yeah, maybe a hammer will work. Um, you know, they're they're even known for you know in insect pinning collections. You know, when you're trying to pin an insect, mm-hmm. um, they're known for just like bending those needles. I mean, it's like really That's hard nice. to actually pin one. That I I had a uh, someone who worked for me for a, a summer. John Namati was talking about how he tried pinning one in his collection back in the day, and he had tried a needle. And he tried a nail with a hammer and he tried just the hammer and he ended up just not having one in his collection. That's <laughs> Did he, does he know glue exists? Has well, he seen glue? No, I no. So, I mean, you got to pin them, man. You got to pin no, them. right. You got to do it the right way. <laughs> but what's remarkable, right, is like in, in engineering, right? And, and you know what you do woodworking and I, I love doing some construction yeah. woodworking as well. You know, one of the challenges, especially when you're trying to mix different materials together, right? Or even just starting with wood, right? Like you have to think about how hard is that wood for the application you're trying to make, right? right? If it's like a house frame where you need some flexibility versus you're trying to create a nice aesthetic block, a box or a cutting board, Um, you know, just thinking about making something that is uh, very, very tough and resilient is very important. But then also when you're thinking about um, putting multiple ma- different materials together in the bonding of those materials. Yeah. So even it might be wood again with glue, but it might be putting together with screws or nails and thinking about how that bond will hold up over time. And, and how strong is that bond with this beetle? It has a number of different materials that are kind of bound together and make this, this exoskeleton incredibly strong. And what's amazing, what I love about this paper, because I, I started reading it and I quickly realized that this is out of my league. And it's because <laughs> all of the authors are engineers. Like they're not entomologists. They're material science wow. and engineering. Uh, let's see, a civil engineer. They've got a department of mechanical engineer. Uh, let's see. They've also got, yeah, department of chemical and environmental engineering. Like wow. they're all engineers studying the properties of this beetle so that they can better understand how to make uh, materials and like construction materials, let's say, that would have similar um, robust properties as, as this beetle. Yeah, that's that, that's pretty amazing. And it, it, is, it is interesting when we think about who studies what, right? And that, that feels like that would be like me as a plant guy studying I, I, I don't even know. I don't even have a good comparison. Like how hard is asphalt? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but, but when we talk about how much biomimicry we do, uh, yeah. or we use in our construction techniques and in our engineering, uh, the way that these materials work together in nature, you know, it, it's interesting. We, we, we think about how this is a tangent 
a bit, but in science, or we talk a lot about how, oh, we're, we're coming up with new methods of doing things or, or in engineering and, you know, oh, there was this great new building technique. There's a pretty good chance that nature's already done it and probably yeah. done it better than us. Sure. <laughs> so, like, oftentimes, like the technology is inspired by nature. Like in this case, yeah. you know, in a couple of years, there's probably going to be some really cool paper about a new super strong material. And it's going to be because it was inspired by things from the yeah. diabolical ironclad beetle. Bi diabolical ironclad beetle. You're going to, in, in five years, you're going to be cooking with a diabolical ironclad pot. No. Pan. Yeah, pan. It was the pan I was thinking of. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, what is that thing that's like a pot, but, but not it's a shallow? Pot? It's, it's, a, <laughs> it's a short pot that you put bacon in. I don't know. <laughs> Tiny bacon pot. Yeah. Anyway, um, we have we have derailed at this point, we but digressed. But no, that that is very interesting, though. It is very interesting in the yeah. uh, I'll have to read that paper later, but it's that's uh, pretty cool. It's pretty cool to think about all the ways that that nature finds uh, mechanisms to survive in all these crazy and harsh environments. Absolutely. Nature continues to educate and nourish not only our bodies, but minds and souls. I thought that'd be a beautiful sign off. Well, but <laughs> but before I let you get away, before oh. we, I have to say congratulations to you, uh, Dr. Vafai, for your successful defense of your uh, doctoral dissertation. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate that. Yeah, it was a week from uh, a couple days ago. So on the October 14th, I, I defended with honor, with great honor. I defended <laughs> my, uh, my PhD dissertation. It was on Zoom, which meant that like, all kinds of people from everywhere could join. You were there. Thank yeah, you so it was much. Great. For, you did a great job. Yeah. And uh, it feels great to be done. And so we're going to be producing content that's at least 10% better now. At least 10%. At least 10% because we now might that hit I have 15. Time, yeah. Uh, let's, I mean, we don't want to make promises we can't. Do. <laughs> <laughs> well, this but has been no, another uh, wonderful episode of Jelly Green Scientists. Again, my name is Erfan Vafai with Texas A&M AgriLife Extension. And I'm Vikram Baligia with Texas Tech University. Y'all have an exquisite fortnight.